Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to look today at Psalm 49, continuing our series through the book of Psalms. And the title of our study today is Solving the Problem of Life. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word addresses the the many myriad of issues and and circumstances and challenges of our lives and lord you have not you you have spoken clearly you have spoken definitively you have spoken for the sake of our life and for our godliness that our hope would not rest in mere men but that it would rest in the hope that you have revealed in your word and so, Lord, we thank you that your word is true and that it teaches us about Christ, that it teaches us about hope, and that it teaches us about the meaning and the value and the purpose of life. And that the, that the, the big questions of life are not too big for our God because you have clearly revealed yourself the the one who is the author and the finisher of our faith the one who creates and sustains this world by the word of your power the one who gives us life and breath and who causes us to sleep and yet also helps us to wake in the morning you are the one who has even numbered our days you know the hairs on our heads and the thoughts that we think even before we think them Lord, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for your grace. We're thankful that you alone are enough for us and that now we pray as we open your word that you would teach us from this great psalm and help us, Lord, to trust you in the midst of difficult and even trying times. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 49. Psalm 49. Hear what the word of God has to say to us. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Surely no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are like their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they uh, call lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, and yet 
after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep they are appointed for shield, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol, with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry away nothing. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, yet uh, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generations of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp yet without understanding is like the beasts that perish. This is the reading of God's precious word. We might ask, what is the problem of life? It's a, it's a question that everybody asks at some point in their lives. In an earlier generation, the pursuit of this question led many people to go to the Himalaya mountains to visit a shriveled monk uh, that was sitting and contemplating such questions. And yet nowadays we have the internet and so we just go to Google and we type in an answer. What is the problem of life? And out comes answers like everyone is responsible for their own destiny. This sounds like the kind of obscure answer that you might get if you go to the Himalaya mountains and talk with a Tibetan monk. So we need to understand what is the answer to this question. And this is why we can know the answer because God has revealed himself in the word of God. And what God says is enough for us. He is the one who made us. Psalm 139 says he fashioned us in our mother's womb. He knows the very head, the very hairs on our head. He knows the length of our days. And so we can trust him. He has revealed himself and he has told us about the issue the ultimate issue and the ultimate answer to the issue of life. Those answers are in the word of God. In fact, this claim is made in Psalm 49, who calls out to all the world to hear the wisdom the psalmist does in the first two verses when he says, Hear this, all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, the world to give ear to his wisdom. When he says... Hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. So the psalmist reminds us that Scripture is not the private resource of believers. It's given by God for the instruction of every single person. Psalm 49 is a wisdom psalm. It's composed not only to give praise to God, but to instruct men. Verse 3 of Psalm 49 says, my mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. And this psalm might read to us like a proverb. It should. With wisdom that comes from heaven. I will incline my ear to a proverb, the writer says, indicating that he first listens to divine instruction before giving it. And the psalmist's musical gifts will then present his lesson in a manner suited to our learning. Verse 4, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. 
And in the same way that we use songs to teach lessons to kids and even adults today, the psalmist would use his song to give wisdom to us today. And Psalm 49 not only offers not, not mere random tidbits of wisdom, but the answer to the great problems of life. And according to the psalmist, this problem which the wise consider and the foolish neglect is death. Verse 12 of Psalm 49 says, Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. And so after the introductory call to wisdom, the psalmist considers the futility of riches in averting death, the certainty of death, and bringing man down to the grave, and the great disservice and death between, <coughs> between the foolish and the upright, before concluding with a call not to fear, but to trust the Lord, who redeems believers from death. The first piece of wisdom provided by this psalm is that money is unable to preserve us from the great problems of death. A wise person will not be distressed by the riches amassed by others. Psalm 49, 5-6 says, Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surround me? those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Now, this doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with riches. Folly consists not in having wealth, but in trusting wealth and boasting of riches. James Boyce says, since we're eternal creatures, we ought to focus on how we might prepare for eternity rather than on how we might accumulate increasing wealth here and perish with it. And it's easy to prove that Westerners, we live in a materialistic culture. We say that somebody is doing well in life when they have a great deal of money. Virtually everything is measured in terms of money. It costs or gains, including the quality of a job, the value of a car, the success of a church or a ministry, and on and on. The perspective is not unique to our times. All we have to do is study history and it will show us that this focus on wealth to be a virtual constant of human societies of all ages. A classic statement of the folly of trusting in money was made by none other than the Lord Jesus in his parable of the rich fool. If we remember the story, a wealthy land owner had more goods than he could store, so he built bigger barns. He said to himself in Luke 12, 19, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said in Luke uh, 12, 20, But God said in the fool, This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Jesus' conclusion was as unvarnished as it is unheeded in Luke 12, uh, 21. So is the one who lay up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And now the psalmist continues by ridiculing those who try to buy their way out of death in Psalm 49, 7-9. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the, for the ransom of their life is costly. It can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Now, rich people are able to buy better health care, the best beauty products, and ever youth-inducing drugs, all of them on the market. And yet, for all of that, the rich are still going to die. They're still going in the grave, even if they have a nice coffin and a nice burial place and all of it. They're still going to die. Death laughs at bags of gold, observes William Plummer. And the same is true about God's curse of death on sinful 
mankind, the justice of God, holding fast the sinner, scorns the richest bribe. And however much money one may offer for his soul, the price is simply too high. And Jesus said in Luke 9.25, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or even forfeits himself? You see, the problems of life which call us to be ready to face the fact of death is one that simply cannot be solved by earthly riches. That is why the pursuit of pleasure for the sake of pleasure will never, ever satisfy you. You can, you can get all the, the great performance reviews in the world that you want. You can write all the books in the world, even the best books. You can, you can make the, the greatest melody uh, sing with great force and all of it. You can speak well and all of it fails. And I'm reminded here of Ecclesiastes 3, where, where this man who was given a gift of wisdom and knowledge by the Lord, he said that all is vanity and grasping for the wind. That is, the pursuit of pleasure for pleasure's sake, pursuing it for the end of itself, it's always going to lead to vanity and, I, and i'm reminded here as well of tom brady tom brady having won more than a than a finger's worth hands worth of super bowls he was asked so are you fulfilled in life do you have you found the meaning of life have you found true happiness and he had to admit tom brady did that he had not Here's a man who is at the, at the height of his power, at the height of his career. At the time, he was married to a supermodel. He had just won the Super Bowl. He had kids. He had money. He had wealth. He, by all definition, he had what the world said it. By every imagination of what it means. And yet, even Tom Brady realized like Solomon did before him, that it's all vanity. It's all temporary. This life, if the goal of your life is the pursuit of pleasure for pleasure's sake, you're always never going to have enough because only God can satisfy that need for you. You might go to your job. You might go to to all these things, sports, and the list goes on and on. And you're never, ever going to be satisfied by the things of life. They cannot satisfy. And now uh, the psalmist in Psalm 49, 10 through 12, he turns from our possessions to our persons. And he points out that death truly is the greatest of life's problems because of its universality and its grim results. We sometimes ask what the per death rate is for a certain group of people. And given the time, the true answer is always 100%. Psalm 49.10 says, For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Most people do everything possible to avoid thinking about dying. And yet, this is the very looming threat about which everyone needs to be thinking the most about. Youthful folly is just 
just folly. It's it's just uh, it doesn't work. The folly of older people is less excusable for even after friends and acquaintances have departed for the grave, we seek diversions rather than to prepare for the near the ever nearing day of reckoning that is of death. If that day comes, however we are prepared for it or not, it does not matter how clever you are, how successful you are, the psalmist insists all alike must perish in verse 10. Not only will riches fail to protect us from death, but in death we also leave our riches to others. The well-worn story of how much a wealthy, recently deceased friend left behind should remind us that he left everything. However magnificent a house we have lived in for the few short years of our life, those who are not prepared for death will spend eternity in a bitter end of darkness, the unending, unrelenting, conscious punishment of hell. Psalm 49.11 says, Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. It's a stark reminder that even when you go to a cemetery and you have a, a very nice burial plot with a, a nice headstone and all the entrapments, that the person in the grave is still dead. Psalm 49.11 especially mocks the habit of many to seek eternal glory in a world that they will soon be leaving. The psalmist remarks that they called lands by their own names, referring to those who seek to leave their mark on the world by naming real estate after themselves. The rich do this by donating millions to have new buildings dedicated in their names, and the less wealthy buy a brick to contribute to some civil landmark, leaving a tiny record of their existence on the planet. It's by particularly mystifying to see lavish monuments erected in graveyards, marking in bronze and mar marble grandeur the spot where the deceased stopped enjoying anything of worldly glory. John Calvin says their desire should be to have their names written in the book of life and to be blessed before God and his holy angels, but their ambition is to another kind, to be renowned and extolled upon the earth. And so far as the glory of man is concerned, death is the greatest equalizer. Psalm 49.12 presents the heart of the psalmist's argument on death as a true problem of life when it says, Man is pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. And while God made man above the beast, Psalm 8.5 declares that you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And sin has subjected us to an animal destruction in the grave. And the expression will not remain. It literally indicates that man will not pass the night. This is the measure of death as the greatest problem of life. A traveler staying overnight in a hotel has a more secure position and possession in life. Life passes us so quickly that we are like a guest who does not make it even to the breakfast the next morning. And so, so far, the psalmist's wisdom has been extraordinarily gloomy, right? As he comes to his finale, his message gets even worse and also far more glorious, depending on where we stand in respect to the great divide on the question of death. Everyone is exactly in the same, the same with respect to death, except for the decisive difference between those whom the psalmist refers as foolish and those he refers to as upright in Psalm 49, 13 through 14. 
This is the main point of his psalm. It present, presents far more than the commonplace observations about death that are found in every philosophy and every religion. The difference is that for those who are prepared for death, there is redemption, though money cannot buy it. And although man in this life does not even survive the night, a new morning will dawn, for there is hope in the Lord. Psalm 49, 13-14, it presents the dismal end of those who trusted in money or other worldly hopes, saying this is the path of those who have foolish confidence, and yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep they are appointed for shield, death shall be their shepherd. The imagery, uh, uh, the imagery, excuse me, uh, so, so Psalm uh, 49, 13-14, it presents the dismal end of those who trusted in money or other worldly hopes when it says this is the path of those who have foolish confidence and yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd. And so the imagery of sheep is a mocking one since it speaks of a helpless flock being led to a slaughter of which they are unaware. Sheol refers to a dark place of the dead, and there they will languish those who lived in boastful confidence and the approval of worldly society. Psalm 49, 14 says, Their form shall be uh, consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. George Horn says, The high and the mighty ones of the earth, whose cause, who cause people to fear and nations to tremble around them, must one day crowd the grave. Their death, that ravening wolf, shall feed sweetly on them and devour his, devour his long-expected prey in silence and darkness. And here we see the true tragedy of earthly riches and uh, plaudits by protecting mortal men and women from the hard realities of life. The glories of this life give a false security to many and thus who are thus shepherded by pleasure into utter ruin and eternal ruin. Now, history provides a vivid illustration of this blind dash into the grave and the sinking of the infamous cruise ship RMS Titanic. The Titanic's passengers reveled in earthly pomp and pride right up to the moment when their ship was pierced by an iceberg. John Bunyan provides a, a, a related warning in the Pilgrim's Progress depicting what the ungodly lose by trusting in riches. And in Bunyan's allegory, the interpreter shows a man with a muckrake gathering straw and small sticks on the floor. And all the while, a celestial crown was held over the laborer's head, but the man never looked upward, only down. He was one of those who considered heaven a fable and desires only the treasure of this world. The interpreter's point was to show how earthly things, when they are, are with power upon men's minds, quite carry their hearts away from God. And so Bunyan's pilgrim replied, Oh, deliver me from the muckrake. To which the interpreter replied, That prayer has lain by till it's almost rusty. Give me not riches is scarce the prayer of one in ten thousand. Bunyan's description of what the ungodly forfeit agrees with the psalmist when, who speaks of others who escape death's darkness and light. And not only will the foolish be shepherded by death, but the upright shall rule over them in the morning, Psalm 49.14 tells us. Biblical scholars sometimes insist that the Old Testament believers knew virtually nothing about the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ, and they had little thought for life after death. But numerous passages refute this idea, including Psalm 49, 14 through 15. 
Here the hope of the upright is expressed in terms of redemption and resurrection. The psalmist had argued that that one can ransom himself from death with money. It does not follow, however, that one can be redeemed from the grave. Psalm 49.15 turns on one of the many but God statements of the Bible that shows how trusting the Lord changes everything. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. And not only does the psalmist here look to God to watch out for him in life, but he knows that the God he trusts will save his soul from the power of death. And it's true that Psalm 49 does not present fully the doctrines as they're worked out in the New Testament. The psalmist sees hell as a place of dark consumption, which is bad enough, but the New Testament goes further to describe hell as a place of eternal fiery torment in Matthew 5, 21, Revelation 20 and other places. Psalm 49's doctrine of redemption is also more basic than the full biblical teaching. The apostles, such as Paul and Peter, taught a full redemption from the guilt of sin and the curse of death through the saving power of Christ's death. Paul says this in Ephesians 1.7, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Peter taught in a way that directly relates to Psalm 49 in 1 Peter 1, 18-19, when he said, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And without articulating these details, the psalmist still looks to the God of grace to deliver him from death's power. Michael Wilcock explains, Our psalmist believes that a ransom price too high for any human being to pay in order to buy himself out of death's clutches is not too high for the Lord, and that once the price is paid and he has escaped death, he will be with God. And this reminds us that sometimes the simplest understandings of the gospel are still yet the most profound understandings of the gospel. The psalmist expresses his doctrine of redemption with words that are worthy for the faith of a child in verse 15 of Psalm 49, which says, For he will receive me. That is a glorious hope when spoken of, of the God of grace, a hope that any who look in faith to God through Jesus Christ may possess. And having been redeemed by God's saving power, the psalmist knows that a resurrection for him lies ahead. Psalm 49, 14 says, The upright shall rule over them in the morning. And whereas those lost in the folly of unbelief will perish in eternal darkness, a light is ahead for those who enter the grave trusting in the Lord. This is the key to facing death without fear, to commit your soul into the hands of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Unlike the ungodly, God's sheep will not serve as fodder for death, for God himself will take to himself into heaven the souls of those who belong to Christ on the earth. And their believers' souls will be kept safe in glory until the resurrection light shines on the earth, where their bodies quietly await the return of Christ. John Calvin refers to the metaphor like this, that in the morning, as a beautiful and striking metaphor of the coming day when believers will behold Christ, the Son of Righteousness, face to face, in the full effulgence of life which resides in Him. Well, Boyce, James Boyce described Psalm 49:14 as an anticipation of the morning of the resurrection when the saints shall be raised to glory and receive their spiritual rewards. 
And the great difference in death between unbelievers and followers of Christ is illustrated in the differing experiences of the two prominent men who died in 1899. The first was Colonel Robert G. Insroff, for, for whom Insroff lectures of, on immortality at Harvard University are named, who gave his brilliant mind to the refutation of Christianity. Insroff died suddenly, leaving his unprepared family utter bereft. And so grief-stricken was his wife that she would not allow his body to be taken from their home until its threat to the family's health required its removal. His remains were then cremated and his funeral service was such a scene of dismay and despair that even the newspapers of the day commented on it. Death came to this man and there was no hope but only an irredeemable tragedy. The other man, famous man who died that year was uh, Dwight L. Moody, the Christian evangelist. Moody had been declining for some time. His family had gathered around his bed. On his last morning, the sun heard him sing, Earth is receding, heaven is opening, God is calling. You are dreaming, fathers, said his son. But Moody said, no. Well, this, this is no dream. I have been within the gates. I have seen the children's faces. Moody seemed to revive, but then started to slip away again. Is this death? He was heard to say. This is not bad. There is no valley. This is bliss. This is glorious. His daughter had now come, and she began to pray for him to recover. No, no, Emma, he said. Don't pray for that. God is calling. This is my coronation day. I have been looking forward to it. Moody died not long after his family, confident of his entry into heaven. His funeral was a scene of triumph and great joy. Those attending sang hymns and exalted God. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? They exclaimed with radiant faces. As Psalm 49 sees it, the difference in these two deaths and the two eternities that follow, they resulted from the great difference between the two men in life. For all of his confident swagger, the monuments erected to him on earth and the approval he received from the adorning public, Ensoff was unprepared to face the great problems of life. For Moody, like countless others who committed themselves to the Lord Jesus, there was loss in this world, but much greater gain in the world to come. Having turned his back on the worldly glory and committed his cause to Christ, Moody could say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4.8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And now in the final verses of Psalm 49, the psalmist asserts that having understood how to face death, believers are equipped to know how to live. And once we have learned life's true problems and its answer, we learn that the key to life is no longer to fear man, it's to trust God. The psalmist says this in Psalm 49, 16 through 17, when he says, Be not afraid when a rich man, when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry away nothing. His glory will not go down after him. In many psalms, the righteous cry out to God in fear of the wicked and the boastful. In Psalm 49, the psalmist assures us that there really is nothing to fear from the wicked at all. When it says in Psalm 49, 18-19, For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. This application is one of the chief errors that cause Christians difficulty in their life. The false belief that we can expect riches, ease, and even pleasures in this life. 
Pastors constantly face disgruntled Christians who express their outrage at God because they have suffered or even missed some earthly blessing. And yet, Scripture is clear in stating that to follow Christ, one must turn his back on the world and his pleasure. Luke 9, 23-24 says, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The Apostle John taught believers this, Do not love the world or the things of the world, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, who it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever, in 1 John 2, 15-17. And this is the biblical approach to how to process and deal with life. Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in heaven. So Paul wrote that our gaze is not fixed on earthly things. In 1 Corinthians 7.31, it says the, the present form of this world is passing away. And so he adds, so Christians are not to lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where they are never secure, but Jesus commands us in Matthew 6, 19 through 20, to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where, neither, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so scripture and history alike declare that the world-renouncing Christians are the most useful to both heaven and to earth. They are freed to a life of wholehearted commitment to Christ and to the gospel of Jesus. Like the youthful missionary martyr Jim Elliot who wrote, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what that which he cannot lose. Such a faith also frees us from the fear of man, including those with great riches and earthly power. And having understood death and eternity, the Christian understands life and is free to face its reality without envy, without fear. And what is this reality? The psalmist spares no measure of ugly truth when he reprises verse 12 at the end of Psalm 49 and verse 20. Man in his pomp yet without understanding is like the beasts that perish. What a tragedy it is for somebody to live without this understanding of death. For to see the problem of life is to seek the answer which God has provided to a world in the form of his own son Jesus Christ. John 11:25 says, I am the resurrection and the life Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And Jesus followed that declaration with a question, the answer to which tells us where we stand with respect to the wisdom of Psalm 49. When he asked in John 11:26, do you believe this? And if you do believe, committing your salvation into his hands, you may say for yourself the words of Psalm 49, 15. God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Today, every single person on the face of this planet is seeking the answer to the question, what is life about? What are the great issues of life? What is the meaning and the purpose of my life? Everyone is seeking that answer. They're seeking meaning and value and worth in their work and their job and their home and their spouse, maybe even in their church. And yet the Bible gives us a different answer than all of those things. It tells us that we can find meaning and value and purpose, not in ourselves, not in the things that we do, 
but rather we are to find our meaning and value and purpose in the Lord. The the Westminster Confession of Faith begins with this very question, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The Heidelberg Catechism uh, begins in this way as well. What is the great comfort in life and death? The great comfort in life and death is to know the Lord. What is your hope? What is your confidence? Where is your joy? Do you know the meaning and the purpose and the value that, that the, of the life that God gave you? And do you think about the question of death? You know, we are appointed this life once, and then we go to die, Hebrews tells us. We go to be with the Lord. If you have not repented and put your trust and your hope in Christ, I plead with you on the basis of Acts 16.31 to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the basis of Romans 10.9-17, to believe that Jesus Christ bled and died and rose, and that you are to, to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died and rose again. And yet still as a Christian, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 2, tells us that we are to remind ourselves of these things. That it is by this truth, by this message of the gospel, that we stand. We don't stand because we're so great. We stand because of Christ. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, from the beginning and the middle and the to the end and everywhere in between, it is Christ. And so we must take the truth of Christ and what he has done, and we must do as the psalmist did. We mu- in, in Psalm 1, too, we must meditate on the law day and night. We must take the word and we must chew on it. We must talk to ourselves from the word about what God has said. And that's what we've been doing today, considering this great psalm in Psalm 49. Thinking about the the issue of life and the meaning of it, the purpose of it. The the means that, that God has given you is not the end of your life. Your job is not the end of your life. Your ability to make money is not the end of your life. The end of your life is is not to be spent for even your spouse. You, the very reason that you are here, the reason that I am here, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is our purpose. And everything flows from that purpose for the Christian. Every single thing. You want to know how to have a flourishing marriage? You want to know to have how to have a flourishing work life, professional life, and everything? Glorify God. Lift up your gaze. Lift up your heart to the Lord. You know, uh, in the past two weeks, I'll be... Honest, I, I, I have 
needed this psalm. Desperately needed this psalm. There's uh, so many things where I'm waiting on the Lord to do, and it's hard to wait on the Lord. It's hard to put your flesh to death. It's easier to rehearse the, the things in your heart and in your mind that, you know, you're struggling with, you're working through with the help of God's word and the grace of God. And what a psalm like this does is it lifts even our eyes up from death itself to the one who rose from death on the third day, and that is Jesus Christ. And that is such an encouragement. That is such an encouragement. That we do not have one who is stuck in the tomb. We have one in Jesus who says in John 19.30, It is finished. It is signed, it is sealed, it is delivered in the blood of the Son of God and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Oh, as Hebrews 12 tells us, we can we are to look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We have such a great hope. We have such a great joy because... Although the problems and the issues of life may, yes, assail us, and yes, they hurt, and yes, they're painful, and yes, losing friends and dear mentors, it hurts, and false accusations may rain down upon us yet again and again and again, and yet the Lord is still good. He still remains. He is the Lord. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the Prince of Peace, the Alpha and Omega, the Lord our righteousness. Oh my goodness. How our hearts should leap for joy and respond with, the, with glory be to God. How our hearts should be full of wonder and our Lips full of praise to God. And all of this is because as we began our time together, the Bible does not, is not silent on these matters. As we've seen today, the Bible is clear. There is an answer to what is the problem of life. There is an answer to the great issues of life and that centers the Bible's message, on this Bible's message, that Christ came under the sentence of death as a baby to pay the price for you and I in our place and for our sin to be buried and to rise on the third day and to ascend to the right hand of our God and King where he is now our high priest, our mediator, our intercessor, and he is our soon returning king. So let our hearts be full of praise this day as we look to our the great Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king. And may our hearts be full of wonder, and may the response be one of worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true, and that 
Because your word is true, you have given us a clear and definitive answer about the problems of life that center on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we are so thankful, profoundly thankful, eternally grateful for the, for the gift of the Son of God and the Son of Man, our Lord, our King, our Prophet, our Priest and King, Jesus. And Lord, may we fix our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith, our King, our Lord, our Master, our Commander. And may our gaze never falter. And may we, when it does, maybe look to the one, as Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, who offers to help us in time of need. And oh Lord, how we need your help. And how you give it to us, as Ephesians 1 says, your grace superabounds towards your own. Lord, we're so thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.